Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive podcast. This is a true crime, paranormal, interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. HR Smokenstein, THCO, or you can just call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own screen queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the bride, the Smokenstein, the India, Harry, the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Hi. Today we reach the end of our story, Michael Myers Part 4, and unfortunately the end of the Halloween season for another year. But luckily for you, we live in the horrorverse where it's spooky season all year long, even on the alleged birthday of the supposed Lord and Saviour of the world. Now, most people know that 90% of the subjects we cover also have been covered in the world of Hollywood, with countless movies and documentaries. I mean, we have Stab for Ghostface, Halloween for Michael, Child's Play based on the Andy Barkley case that builds from an urban legend about real-life killer Charles Lee Ray. And over the past few years, we got movies based on the legend of Art the Clown. You were worried that it was his story that I wanted to cover this Halloween, due to most of his real-life crimes taking place for the most part on Halloween, just like Michael. But I don't really want to start an unfinished story. And with the legend of Art still alive and well, I didn't think it was worth covering completely right now. But we'll definitely cover him in the future. I mean, what you see in the two previous Terrifier movies are nothing compared to what he gets up to in real life. Hang on, he's still out there. Supposedly, it's complicated, we'll get into it eventually, but the reason I bring him up is the teaser trailer for Terrifier 3 came out this week, and I knew this from the research I had already covered, but it'll show that not all of his crimes took place on Halloween. Those movies are fucking hardcore. To be fair, just because director Damien Leon has said he wants the movie to show the true nature, danger and evil that is Art the Clown. And to do that, he has to show the crimes in all their gory detail. Yeah, but it's just hard to sit through the gory detail. Well, you won't have to. Not for another year at least, but that's not to say we don't have subjects that are just as bad or in some cases worse coming up. Worse than art, like name one. I heard the studios wouldn't even fund the third movie due to the level of graphic violence in the first scene alone. I heard that too. Did a little digging and apparently that isn't completely true. Apparently Damien Leon was so sure that the studios wouldn't uh, would refuse to fund it that he didn't even bother to ask for funding and got funding sorted out independently by himself. Lovely. It's so bad he do not even ask for the money. <laughs> what are you going to do? These movies are all based on real events that have happened throughout the horrorverse. You can really you can't really blame a director for having integrity to show the public what type of evil really lives amongst us. It's the people like Billy Loomis or Stu Mocker that take those movies as inspiration and see these guys as meant to look 
woke up to there are real problems in society. Yeah, that new trailer was tense though. Yeah, I shared it around on all our socials. At Alive Alive on all platforms. After this week, I am going to need a break from serial killers. I, these guys are starting to give me nightmares. I know. The more we learn about killers, the more paranoid of people I get. But you'll be happy to know next week we will be taking a break from serial killers for the paranormal, primarily sending, spending the week studying poltergeist events across the board on all our shows. That includes our, your mini souls, the Creepy Past Crypt, mm-hmm. my mini souls, mini monsters, and our Patreon shows, Real Monsters and Behind the Mask. It's not a bad batch of shows for five euro. Like, that's early access to all the Spotify shows and two extra full length shows every week for essentially 125 a week. Good deal, all right. But mm. before we move on to the world of the paranormal, we have one more week of nice slashing gore to get through as we look at Haddonfield in 2022 and the final showdown between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. Along with that, we will see that maybe the Cult of Thorn might have been onto something as Michael's curse appears to pass to a new host. That or the whole town of Haddonfield is now as fucked up as Laurie, basically living through her experience from 1978 as a whole town becoming toxic and making more bad situations out of the evil left behind from michael left behind are still there just hidden in hibernation Mm. let's get into it and find out last week we discussed the second escape of michael myers and his journey to his home in lampkin lane not just reliving his last night of blood but instead outdoing it going over triple his original body count the town of Haddonfield had taken enough and together they banded to take down the evil but as today's title suggests, this, that task was easier said than done. And while the boogeyman was down, he was still not quite out. As one body deteriorated, another took shape. 2018 had spread a virus through Haddonfield that could only be compared to COVID in its speed and severity. The town was turning in on itself and the once peaceful slice of American pie had now, was now a den of anger, paranoia and fear. After Michael murdered his final victim in 2018, Karen Nelson, he vanished. Some thought, like a fatally wounded animal, he went off into a hole somewhere to die. Some thought he went into hiding, building his strength to eventually return to more bloodshed. Some thought he really was the boogeyman, and not a real man at all. We know that's not true, and now the 65-year-old Myers was barely clinging to existence, his body badly broken by the events of his 2018 attack. In 1978, Michael lost an eye, was shot six, maybe seven times, and fell from a two-story home. Then in 2018, he was repeatedly stabbed, shot, and beaten. The exact amount is unknown as he left few survivors and didn't stick around long enough to get a medical examination. It will be revealed later that Michael spent the next four years in a sewer tunnel feeding on rats and other animals possibly the culprit of the disappearance of a few homeless people over that period of time as the sewer entrance was a tunnel located under a highway bypass often used as a homeless tent village the town of Haddonfield hadn't bounced back like it had in 1978 the hysteria that had caused the mob mentality had lingered there was still a dark presence in the town and they could feel it I suppose it didn't help them either that a year and a bit after all this, the world gets struck by COVID. Yeah, you just survived a massacre in your town where the literal boogeyman is breaking into people's homes and brutally killing them. And now you're not allowed to leave your house for the foreseeable future. Oh, and the boogeyman's still out there somewhere. (laughs) We thought we had it bad. Yeah. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Michael Andalus, her daughter and son-in-law dead. The trauma of not just one night of horror with the ship, but two lorry strode must be on lockdown. The works. 15-foot-high electrified walls topped off with barbed wire. Rabbit attack dogs in the yard. An active minefield. Watchtowers, floodlights, a drawbridge, a moat. Machine gun turrets at the door. Cannon snipers. Nukes! Quite the opposite, though. In the years that followed, Laurie made a promise to herself not to let fear rule her life anymore. And she bought a new home for Alison and herself without any traps or for the purpose of hiding. She seeked out real help and therapy and began working on her memoirs and the book that makes up the main source to our story today, Stalkers, Saviors and Sound. She was determined to give Alison a stable home and solid support system, having lived through the same experience herself and knowing what could lie ahead if she allowed Alison to follow in her footsteps. She did a really good job too. Laurie was almost unrecognisable. I really thought she'd swing the other way and lose her marbles altogether when Michael got away again, knowing he's still in the shadows, especially after murdering her daughter. Yeah, I'd be out for blood. The thing is, with Michael missing and the townspeople of Haddonfield still reeling from his last attack, the survivors had no one to point their blame at. Sure, Laurie got a little, with some people taking the view that she drew him back to Haddonfield and into their lives just for existing and living there. Some even still believe the urban legend that she was his younger sister, adopted by the Strodes after the Myers family died out. But for the most part, people were just scared. They had never lived through an event like that before. 78 happened in a bubble, before the internet age and social media, before stories, pics and videos could be circulated freely within seconds. So Michael was not just an urban legend boogeyman story told to you by your parents. The boogeyman was real and his body was yet to be found. This caused some to believe there was a paranormal link. How could a monster such as Myers just simply disappear? Maybe he was an evil entity. A monster that could take any shape, or maybe it was the fear he projected on the town that would shape the next generation of evil. Either way, it happened, and it all started with an accident on Halloween night 2019, Haddonfield. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this, plus movie reviews, watch-alongs, and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang, I mean, like, podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. And start listening now. Halloween night 2019 and Roger and Teresa Allen were getting ready to attend a friend's fancy dress party. Their usual babysitter was not available as she was out partying the night away herself. Luckily though, they had a backup in a shy and slightly nerdy kid that used to cut their lawn for them. His name was Corey Cunningham. These people must be fucking mad. They're heading out on the anniversary of Michael's last massacre while he's still out there on the loose like. Presumed dead. Yeah, show me the body. Then we can go out. Otherwise, we're getting into our PJs, parking our asses in front of the TV. 
well, I'm at least, you're standing by the front door with a load of shotgun. <laughs> or we could just not live in Haddonfield. It seems they've been working for us for you know the last eight years or yeah. so. We lived in the Xna. No one has tried to ma- massacre the village, so you know, touch, touch wood. wood. <laughs> so far. Corey Cunningham was what you would call an all-around good kid. Kind, polite, did well in school and worked hard to earn his keep as his family wasn't the most well-off. They were by no means poor, but they weren't taking yearly vacations or using the latest iPhone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, lower middle class like. Exactly. Anyway, the way Corey tells it, after the Allens left for the party, himself and Jeremy sat down to watch a scary movie. Actually, it was The Thing. Just watched that with Riley. Such a good movie. So much fun. (laughs) Teresa Allen had warned Corey that the events from the year before had left Jeremy feeling anxious, causing him to have nightmares and occasionally wet the bed. So they weren't supposed to be watching the scary movie. Bad babysitter Corey. <laughs> Do you remember that song? I'm a bad babysitter. I'm a bad babysitter. No. No? No, I've never heard of that. Oh, I got to play that song yeah. afterwards. It came on, on the radio there one day at work and I was like, oh, I haven't heard this in so <laughs> fucking long. If that was the worst he would do, then, well, we'd have a shorter episode, so yeah. we'll keep going. Jeremy, being a little pain in the ass kid, began to antagonize Corey, eventually pissing Corey off, causing Corey to send him to bed. But Jeremy wasn't ready to go to bed, and he ran off telling Corey he was playing hide and seek, and he wouldn't go to bed until Corey found him. Corey played along, searching the large suburban home for Jeremy, giving the kid one last bit of fun before bedtime. This is literally our fucking nightly routine. Uh-huh. Yep. Come find him, play hide and seek. And then you find him and he freaks out and he makes <laughs> you do it again. And then you find him and he freaks out and he makes you, you do it again. You found me wrong. And then you give <laughs> out to him and he finally gives up after you do it one more time. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. And that is parenting. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy played Corey, uh, played Corey making a noise in a little room upstairs by the main landing. Once Corey went inside to search for Jeremy, Corey claimed Jeremy locked him into the darkened room. Corey said he began to feel severely claustrophobic and since Jeremy was not responding to his calls, began to panic after the events from the year before. He began to kick the door out of fear and anger of the situation he had found himself in. Little did he know, or so he says, Jeremy was standing right outside the door and when Corey finally broke the door open, the blast of the door hit off of Jeremy, causing him to fall backwards and over the landing banister, landing head first on the hard tile below, falling an estimated 25 feet. An accident for sure and a tragic one. The only problem is Teresa and Roger Allen saw it all from a different perspective, causing the story to become muddled, to say the least. Yeah, as Corey kicked at the door, the Allens arrived home from the party. They claimed that as they reached the front door, they could hear Corey ranting and raving, screaming, I'll kill you at the top of his voice. They entered the house just in time to see their only son land with a splat on the floor in front of them. When they looked up, they saw Corey staring back at them. And here's where it gets really weird. He was holding a kitchen knife. When questioned later about the knife, Corey was unable to give an alibi, saying he couldn't remember how it ended up in his hand. But the audio from the home security cameras confirmed his story, clearing him of any wrongdoing and ruling Jeremy's death as a tragic accident. Not a popular decision when it came to Teresa Allen, who believed Corey did it on purpose and hit the bottle hard after her son's death. Angry that Corey got to go on living his regular life while her son would never see his hopes and dreams realized. But Corey didn't go back to his regular life. As we said earlier, with Michael missing, Haddonfield needed someone to blame. And unfortunately, due to the date of the accident, all that attention found its way to the Cunningham household. Corey became a pariah in his community and taking on almost a surrogate role for the shape. 
His future was in tatters. He's named Mud. It's a wonder he didn't just leave Haddonfield. And go where? Again, we're in the age of social media. A quick Google search and we're playing This Is Your Life. Regardless of if you're in Haddonfield, Dublin, Moscow or Alaska, there's no running from your past in this day and age. True. Maybe that was his logic. At least he still had his family in Haddonfield as well, even if that consisted of his overbearing, nagging mother named Joan and her husband, Ronaldo. Ronaldo owned and ran a scrapyard, and when Corey's college and work prospects fell away after the 2019 accident, he gave Corey a job stripping cars for a living. Corey didn't receive much therapy after the accident and seemed to regress into himself. He was regularly bullied and abused, both physically and verbally, by passers who recognised the troubled youth. It was in one of these encounters that he happened across Laurie Strode, who found him surrounded by four youths, who had knocked him to the floor, cutting his hand on glass in the process. Laurie cleared off the, twi- the twins, the teens, <laughs> and picked Corey up, bringing him to a local medical facility. It was just those two twins from fucking Shining standing over him going, come and play with us, Corey. No, <laughs> no, 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 the paranormal is just for next week. So... <laughs> Anyway, as I was saying, she um, picked him up and she brought him to a local medical facility. A medical facility that also happened to be the place of work for her granddaughter, Alison. Laurie playing matchmaker here a bit, I think. Yeah, and unfortunately for her, she was good at it because it didn't take long after that for Corey and Alison to become an item, bonding on a shared experience of Halloween trauma. You say unfortunately because instead of becoming a support system for each other, they started to feed off each other's insecurities. Corey being the aggressor when it came to fueling the instability. I talked about this as well when we uh, talked about Columbine, something we're mm. going to cover a little later on in Real Monsters, about Klebold and Harris, how Klebold was kind of the aggressor of the two mm. and kind of uh, led Harris along by Harris's insecurity yeah, yeah. And, and depression. Alison met Corey when he was already on the edge. All it was going to take was a slight breeze to push this guy over the edge, and that's what happened on October 28, 2022. Alison and Corey attended a Halloween party together. Laurie, as part of her therapy, embraced the holiday and all its traditions, so she encouraged Alison to dress up and go out and have some fun. It was at this party that Corey came face-to-face with Teresa Allen for the first time since the accident, now exactly one year ago. The drunk, grieving mother berated Corey, causing him to fumble out the door and as far away from the community that shunned him. Alison followed close behind him. After a brief but heated exchange, Corey ran off, leaving Alison feeling confused and frustrated. On his way home, Corey was again accosted by the same teens that had been scared off by Laurie a few days earlier. Again, another heated exchange played out, and when the teens made moves towards the shifty young man, he pulled out a knife, swiping at the teens. Roadside cameras footage picked up images of the kids rushing him, knocking him from an elevated motorway down about 12 feet, leaving him lying right next to a sewage tunnel entrance. It would be this roadside footage that would eventually lead detectives to Meyer's old hideout, but that would be all after the fact. It's believed that once Corey came through, came through, he was accosted by a homeless man. This man would become Corey's first victim and the first official his first official act of murder. Forensics would later put his time of death about six hours after Corey fell on the 30th of October. He was stabbed with a pen knife, the same knife Corey had used to attempt to scare off the teens the night before. Corey was again caught by roadside cameras, leaving at about the estimated time of death of the John Doe homeless man, and the murder weapon was found discarded close by the scene of the crime, Cunningham's prints and the man's blood all over it. 
It's believed that this must have been the first time he came into contact with the shape. I mean, we know now Michael was using this section of sewer as a home of sorts. It would be crazy to think that Corey could spend the night essentially on Meyer's doorstep and have absolutely nothing happen to him. Crazier again that he could sleep at all there that night and live to tell the tale. Exactly. So the question is, why was he left alive? What happened between Corey and Michael that caused them to bond? Did Michael see the evil in Corey's eyes? Or was he just too weak and old to work alone now and saw the potential of having Corey as an apprentice? Unfortunately, we're never going to really know. But we can try and put the story together as best we can using common sense and educated guesswork. As Corey began to form this strange relationship with Michael, he formed an even more intense relationship with Alison. Together they began to make plans to leave Haddonfield and the past in their rearview mirror. But before they could, Corey felt he had some loose ends to tie up, some books that needed balancing. And with Michael as his mentor, that meant only bad things to come. After going home to clean himself up, Corey went to visit Alison with the view of making up. This was when Laurie said she first started to have reservations about Corey, saying that there was a change in his eyes. Something was missing from him that was there only a few days earlier. Corey and Alison took a walk, making their way to the scene of Jeremy's accident, the now abandoned Allen household. Bad idea. This guy is unstable, and now he wants to go back to where all his misfortune started. Alison should have seen this wasn't healthy and stopped him. He told Alison, we were making paper planes, but he wanted to watch a monster movie. Everything happened so fast. I just wanted it to be a fun night. That's all. Just a good night. And then it all went bad. Alison said she responded with, I heard what happened. I know it sounds crazy, but when people talk about it, it was like I knew you, like I was looking for you. And then she brought you to me. She says now in hindsight she feels foolish to have opened up so much to him, knowing the crimes he would soon commit. She partially blames herself for his delusions, as victims from this point on are more people Corey saw as obstacles or people inconveniencing her, and she admits herself not to be in a good place herself at the time, telling Corey if she'd had a choice, she'd burn the whole town to the ground. Little did she know her other half would take that phrase literally and begin his murderous rampage with his second kill of the day, this time sharing the honour with his new mentor, Michael Myers. After their trip to the Allen residence, the couple went to a diner before heading home. There, Corey got into another heated exchange with an officer, Doug Mullaney, a former suitor of Allison's, who had been out with her on one date and was determined to get himself another, even if that meant sticking his nose in the middle of her and Corey's current date. When Allison rejected him and he noticed who she was with current, who she was currently out with, Mullaney made a big scene to highlight Corey's fatal past. But cooler heads prevailed and everyone went back to their seats before any violence could break out. Soon after, Corey and Alison left using, using Corey's motorcycle to get home. Now, Corey had been through enough shit in Haddonfield the past year to know when someone was following him, as some people sometimes did, to hurl abuse or physical violence at him. So although Alison didn't see him, Corey did, and after dropping Alison home, led Officer Mullaney on a little trip, leading him right to the doorstep of the ever-elusive shape and to his certain death. 
Doug Mullaney's body was found in Michael's sewer on November 1st. Time of death estimated to be the 30th of October. Judging from the body's condition and the last known movements of Officer Mullaney, he was beaten, strangled and stabbed repeatedly. It's strongly believed that Corey held Mullaney in place as Michael stabbed him to death, slicing his throat for good measure. The beast was awake, master and apprentice ready to take on the galaxy. Ha, to get the Star Wars reference in. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> And the beast was very much back up and running. The bloodlust reignited by Corey's violent offering. Corey, like his aide, would now direct the older Myers and point him at the targets he felt needed to go. Next on his list was Allison's boss, Dr. Tanner Mattis, and her co-worker and head nurse slash lover of Dr. Mattis, Deb Jennings. Again, this is a murder Allison unintentionally put in motion. She was complaining to Corey about how Deb had snagged the head nurse job from under her. Not due to work ethic or merit, but due to the fact that she was a good-looking girl who was happy to sleep with the doctor. This slight to Alison was all the motivation Corey needed to feed the pair to the shape. And so on October 30th, almost as a warm-up kill before the next big night, Corey and Michael went to the home of Dr. Mattis and sat in wait. First, Corey attacked Dr. Mattis, waiting for Deb to go get changed into something a little more comfortable. He jumped the doctor, covering his face with a plastic bag before stabbing him repeatedly. Then he chased Deb, who caught him in the act, back into the house, pounding on the door momentarily before stopping to watch as Michael pounced. Lifting Deb off the floor by her throat and completing his trademark move, sticking her to the wall with a knife dangling a few feet from the floor, a pool of blood dripping down around her feet. Not to be outdone by Michael, Corey also wore a mask, a plastic scarecrow mask that he took off as he watched Michael at work, positively IDing him later as the killer. Yeah, Dr. Mathis was loaded and had a high-tech house, like everything was wired up and voice automated. He also had the best in-home security and CCTV, so this whole crime was caught entirely on camera. But since their bodies wouldn't be discovered until after the next round of murders, Michael's return to the mainstream had yet to be noticed. Not long after killing Madison Jennings, Corey went to pick up Allison and they went to Corey's favourite hiding spot, the roof of the local radio station, to talk and get away from the world. They eventually made enough noise that they got the attention of the radio DJ working the night shift, DJ Willie the Kid. Willie fancied himself a bit of a true crime buff and liked to sensationalise the legends of Haddonfield on his show for ratings. So when he came across Corey and Allison, he knew exactly who the pair were. He basically told them that they were both freaks and that Laurie teased Michael into doing what he did. He then told them to leave his property before they called the police. Nice guy. should before really watch his season. tongue if you ask me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the couple had had enough and they decided the very next day they would leave the town forever together. Allison went straight home to pack. Corey went home momentarily, had an argument with his mother, then left and went to sleep in the old Allen house. It was there Laurie found him sleeping the next morning, October 31st, Halloween 2022. Laurie had seen enough evil to know when someone was no good. And although she had no idea how or why, in a matter of just days she had seen this bright young boy she introduced to her granddaughter degenerate into an animal just like her old foe. Dead behind the eyes with anger that sunk deep into his soul. The following is an extract from Laurie's book, and it's the conversation she had with Corey that morning. You know, there are two kinds of evil. 
There's the evil that exists as an external force that threatens the well-being of the tribe. Survival depends on understanding and awareness and fear of physical threat to our daily lives. The other kind of evil lives inside us, like a sickness or an infection. It's more dangerous because we may not know we're infected. Corey asks, Am I a bad person? Are you? Well, we're both fucked up. I want to help you, Corey. Let me help you. Or let me find help for you. You can't have her. Alison is not equipped for this relationship and I will not let her get hurt. So stay the fuck away. Corey. You started this. You brought me in. You invited me. You're the one to blame. If I can't have her, no one will. You want to help Alison? Let her live her life. She has me now. You should give in. You should surrender to that feeling you had the first time you ever looked in his eyes. You secretly hope Michael comes back for you. And I'm a psycho. That makes you a freak show. And with that, Laurie left, hoping to instead talk some sense into her granddaughter. But Laurie wasn't fast enough and Corey quickly contacted Alison telling her to be ready for our 9pm at the diner off 74. He also told her Laurie had come to see him threatening to kill him if he didn't cut ties with Alison. Alison was obviously still in a very emotionally fragile place because she was head over heels for Corey and believed every word he said. As soon as the workday was over, she would return home to grab her things. Then it was bye bye Haddonfield. In the meantime, Corey had some plans of his own. The apprentice was done learning from the master and it was time for him to take his place in infamy. Knowing that Michael was in a weakened state and tired from the violent activities from the night before, he went to the boogeyman's lair, ready to take the crown and leave the old man to rot in irrelevance, hidden away in the sores. Again, I don't know how he did it. There must have been a bit of a struggle. But that night, it would be Corey Cunningham under the William Shatner mask, replaying the violence it had come to symbolise in the small town of Haddonfield. Makes you think there is a struggle for the mask. Like, is it possible that Michael just passed it on to Corey as a gift, a way to keep his legend alive now that he was unable to perform as he once could? It's always a possibility. I mean, it's not like we're dealing with a rational man here, but considering Michael would soon come looking for that mask back, I'm taking an educated guess and saying he didn't part with it willingly. Uh huh. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials! No good at Insta! Can't send a tweet! Or an X! Or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now! Stick to your space cars, Elon! But we know, ye wanna chat. You wanna be kept updated. You wanna be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll always try to reply to everyone. So come say hi. We don't bite. Well... At least Amy doesn't. And she keeps me well fed, so you got nothing to worry about. Now, back to the show! <laughs> While Michael might have been down for the count, there was a new boogeyman ready to take his place. Or take his shape, even. Donning the Michael Myers uniform of overalls, a butcher knife, and the iconic inside-out Shatner mask, Corey Cunningham began his reign of terror as the new shape, leading to the belief that Michael was back in town. He was back in town. I know, imagine how confusing that shit was. Beware of Myers. Who, the guy in the white mask? No, just he just has overalls now. 
Oh, good. So the white guy in the white mask is safe. No, he's crazy too. No, wait. Oh, it's too late. You're dead. Haddonfield, where anyone could be a killer. <laughs> Doubt the Illinois tourist board will go with that as a town slogan. But sure, <laughs> it does fit. First on this chopping block were the four teens who had been tormenting Corey in the weeks leading up to Halloween. He antagonized them at the same filling station they first accosted him at and led them on a chase to his place of work. His stepfather, Ronaldo's scrapyard. Once inside, he closed the gate and hid amongst the old wrecked cars, watching the teens every move as, he, as they searched for him, looking to give him a pounding. Although they couldn't find him, they did find his bike and they decided to tie a chain to the wheel so they could drag it with their car, destroying it in the process. The ringleader, Terry Tramer, directed Billy Martin to get the car, while Margot Harris and Stacey Main tied the chain to the bike. After a minute or two, Tramer started to call Billy, trying to get him to hurry up. When he got no response, he went to the car himself to see what was the holdup. There he found Billy dead, sitting in the front seat, a screwdriver driven deep into his right eye. That's when the truck started up and the lights hit the two girls who were still left standing near Corey's old motorcycle. The girls took off running for the gate. Stacy got over in time. Margot wasn't as lucky. And just as she reached the other side, the tow truck Corey was driving collided with the gate, crushing Margot beneath it. Stacy ran to her friend's aid, forgetting the threat of Corey was still present. And as she comforted her friend, Corey approached her wrench in hand and proceeded to beat her to death on the spot. As we discussed in the mini-so this weekend, Halloween is known for being a time of not just costumes and candy, but when it comes to teens, a time for mischief and vandalism. For this reason, Corey's stepfather, Ronaldo, was on guard duty at the yard that night. He was watching a movie on his laptop using headphones when Tramer raised the alarm with him. Giving Tramer a shotgun and arming himself, Ronaldo went outside to see what all the commotion was about. <laughs> CCTV footage sorry, at the scrapyard show Ronaldo coming out surveying the scene, seeing his stepson's handiwork, and in an attempt to save him from Tramer, putting himself in the way of the bullet meant for Cunningham, dying instantly from the shot. When Ronaldo hit the floor, Corey was gone, where seconds before he stood holding Meyer's mask in his hand, now stood nothing but night. Tramer got closer to try and save the still moaning and stuck Margot. That's when Corey crept up behind him, mask now firmly affixed to his face. First, he knocked Tramer to the floor, then he took a blowtorch and burned his face off all as Margot was forced to watch. He then finally put Margot out of her misery, stomping on her head until her skull crushed under the pressure. Next stop was a little closer to home. His mother was found stabbed to death in her favourite chair in her living room. Forensics showed DNA from the slain teens, so we know this murder was next on his timeline. From here, he had one more stop before Laurie's, and this will show you how petty he was. On his way to the Strode home, he stopped off at WRG 94.9 The Urge to pay a little visit to Willie the Kid. He, along with his assistant Susan Prince, were found dead at the station. Willie with his tongue cut out. When he was found, his tongue was still spinning on a turntable. This was one of the first deaths discovered because Willie was old-fashioned and he used vinyl on air. So his dead head and tongue making the record skip did attract some attention from listeners of his show. It also attracted the attention of Laurie Strode, who was desperately trying to get her granddaughter's attention, ringing and texting her in the hope that she might get one more shot to convince her of the truth before it was too late. 
when you live the life like Laurie Strode, you're bound to get an intuition for this kind of thing. So with that, she locked up, went upstairs, lit a jack-o'-lantern she had on her fireplace, had a whiskey and rang in a suicide to the police. She then took her gun and took a shot. Corey rushed into the room. He had been stalking her the whole time and she knew it. It was the jack-o'-lantern she had shot. And once he was baited into the room, Laurie shot him twice, blowing him down the stairs. Leaving him gasping for air. Laurie once more tried to get through to the mentally ill young man, begging him to give up and atone for his crimes or just get on with it and kill her like he had planned to do. But that's not what Corey had in mind. Laurie's way would just prove her right in the eyes of Alison and just dig her deeper into the pit of Haddonfield and after all he had done to try and cut her ties, release her bonds, set her free from this dark and dire place haunted by doom and death. Laurie representing that the most. He'd do anything to ensure Alison's safety and happiness and that couldn't happen here and if it meant he'd have to be a martyr to get her away from Michael, from Laurie, then so be it. He took the knife he had intended for her and he jammed it into his own neck. Just as Laurie grabbed the knife from his side, Alison walked in, playing out just as Corey planned. She ran back outside, got in her car and began to drive. Laurie, thinking it was over, sat back and waited for the cops to show up after her suicide call. Then she realised she wasn't alone. The back door was open and she could hear light footsteps growing heavier and closer. Then she heard Corey gargling again. She peeked out and there he was. Michael, back after four years, again driven back into the life of Laurie Strode by another psychopath consumed by the evil that lived inside the boogeyman. Michael quickly finished Corey off, turning on his apprentice, just like the bad guy in all Star Wars films. Now, with that out of the way, Michael had one loose end to tie up. I know I said last week he didn't really care about Laurie, but she was there and he liked to kill. So again, this whole scene held much more relevance to her. Laurie said she and Michael began to struggle fighting around the kitchen of the house. She knew she just had to keep him busy long enough for police to arrive. But with Michael, a second is all he needs. So this was going to be a hard task. Again, though, Michael is a 65-year-old man whose body has been through the ringer. So this isn't the same animal of 1978 or of even 2018. He was definitely on his last legs regardless. I think even if he had got the better lorry, he would have never got out of there before the cops arrived. And Michael would have been put down that night regardless. Along with that, Hawkins had rang Alison to see what was going on after the suicide call. So she was on her way back now as well. Laurie described how he bashed her head off of the cupboards, the fridge doors, and threw her around the room like a rag doll. But in a moment of pure luck, she managed to grab a knife and pin his hand to the counter with it. She then mounted him, using all her strength to hold the beast down, taking a second knife and pinning his second hand to the counter, whacking the knife in deeper using a frying pan like a hammer. She then dropped the fridge on him to secure him in place. The shape finally stuck and at her mercy. First, she stabbed him in the heart. Then she unmasked him. I've run from you. I've chased you. I've tried to contain you. I have tried to forgive you. I thought maybe you were the boogeyman, but no, you're just a man who's about to stop breathing. She then proceeded to cut his throat and both wrists, leaving him there to bleed out as she watched. Alison arrived just in time to land the final blow, seeing Michael Myers die once and for all ending the reign of the boogeyman of Haddonfield. 
And to show just how much weight this man held in Haddonfield's lore, a normal funeral would not do. Breaking all sorts of protocol and losing Officer Hawkins and Sheriff Barker their jobs, Michael was strapped to the top of Laurie's car and a procession of sorts began to form behind him as the people of Haddonfield followed the body of the boogeyman to his final resting place. Back to Ronaldo's scrapyard, where his body was dumped into a metal shredder, ripping the shape to pieces, leaving no trace or marker in its place. But even with Michael dead, would the boogeyman stay away, or just like it did with Corey Cunningham, would it just again change shape? Was Michael the tormentor or the tormented, and just like the cult of Torn believed way back in the 90s, was he nothing more than a vessel for the hate? I suppose only time will tell. For now, Haddonfield has enjoyed two uneventful regular Halloweens and Laurie is happy. Travelling the country, currently promoting her book. Allenson is also travelling, seeing the world and seizing the day, trying to make a positive out of the negative handed she had been dealt in the past. Hopefully they both live happy lives and the story, the shape, can fade with time, taking its evil spirit with it. And that's it. We're done. The Michael Myers saga is over and our biggest series to date yet. Four episodes and an anxiety-driven meltdown. What a ride. Great story. A lot of work, I think, but we learned a lot from it. If you enjoyed that, then go see the ingredients that make it all work with our Patreon-exclusive shows, Real Monsters, our true crime companion piece to this week's main subject, and Behind the Mask are now our movie discussion show. Along with that, you get early access to our main show and all of our mini-sodes, all for only a fiver. Not bad. So if you want to buy me a drink, buy me a sub instead. I got all the whiskey I need right here. With that, until next week, I'm Dr. Smokenstein. She's Amy Rose. See you next week. Same Alive and Lifetime, same Horrorverse channel. See you. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.